This is the Building the Future Freedom Development Foreign Policy Podcast Series. I'm Dan Rundy, and today we're joined by Todd Moss, the Executive Director and Founder of the Energy for Growth Hub that Todd will be launching later this fall. Todd, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Dan. So, Todd, I've known you a long time. I'm thrilled you're launching this Energy for Growth Hub. Tell us, what is the Energy for Growth Hub, and why are you starting this? Yeah. So, look, I've been working on energy in the developing world for several years. Where there, you know, If you go back 10 years, nobody was talking about electri- electrification in Africa and South Asia. Um, but now it's on everyone's agenda, uh, which is exciting. But I've noticed that there's a lot of focus on household access. We have a sustainable development goal, number seven, which is for everyone on the planet to have electricity at home by 2030. Fantastic goal. However, lights at home is not the same as having a modern energy system for your economy. Everything that we do in our economy relies on large volumes of reliable, affordable energy. Our jobs, the way we travel, absolutely everything about being a globally competitive economy, you need lots of energy. Lights at home will not get you there. And that's true for uh, Nigeria, Kenya, India. Ethiopia. Um, absolutely. You know, they're going to they're gonna probably reach universal access. People will have lights at home, but they won't necessarily have jobs if they don't build modern economies. So I wanted to build a network of scholars that work on energy and economic issues who are dedicated to building this high-energy future for all nations. And that's really what the, what the Energy for Growth Hub is all about. So... Let me. So, if if you said to me, uh, if I look at Africa, is, are you, it's not just going to be Africa; it's going to be worldwide. Well, we're starting focused largely on Africa and parts of South Asia, where the energy gaps are the greatest. You know, look, when we're we're, we're I'm an incrementalist. We want to start uh, where we think we can have the okay. greatest impact. So we've got um, we've got a, a network of fellows that we're building. About half in the U.S., half globally. Right now, we've got people in Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, Bangkok, Thailand, and in New Delhi, India. Wait a minute. So these are like these are folks at think tanks, or these are academics, or these are consultant folks who are in the in the marketplace, working on issues to ramp up energy in these countries. That's right. They're they're largely researchers. Um, but a lot of them are matched with advisors that are in either a think tank or a consultancy firm that plugs them into the policymaking process. This is not a sandbox for uh, data scientists. This is trying to get the smart economists and data scientists who are working on critical large-scale energy issues and helping them get plugged into the policymaking circles. Right, let me see if I understand this correctly. If I'm thinking about Africa, for example, we got a billion Africans. It's going to go to two, two point two billion people. I mean, it's an enormous amount of growth that's going to happen over the next thirty years. That's right. And so, if I think about the issues ten years ago, power Africa, electrify Africa. I think you were front and center on a lot of those debates, and I think you had a lot of influence on those conversations in a positive and good way. So the good news is that it's on the agenda. But the bad news is if we actually really are going to create. It, jobs for an additional billion people in Africa, it's not just going to be having one or two light bulbs in someone's home working because they've got a solar panel on their roof. Is that is that, that a way, that's, simplistic that's, way to describe it? Well, that's right. That's right. You know, we want everyone to have lights in home. Of course, of course. Um, but the scale of the problem is so great, okay? Even just Nigeria. So the Power Africa Initiative, which yeah. I, of which I'm a huge fan, yes. their total goal is is 30 gigawatts of installed new capacity I, is that in a Africa. Lot of, is that a lot? 
It's a lot. It's a lot. It's not enough just for Nigeria over the next 20 years. What does Nigeria it, need for the next 20 years? Like Nigeria needs that? several multiples of that. So they need like um, 120, 150. Depending how fast the economy grows, but we're looking at orders of magnitude. And oh, just God. to give you a sense, in around 2040, Nigeria will have a larger population than the United States. Right now, they have 1% of our electricity capacity. They just that is just unsustainable. It's totally and, unsustainable. And and a low energy future for Nigeria is a jobless future for Nigeria, which is a dangerous future for not just Nigeria, but for the region and for the United yeah, so, States. So so the reason it's dangerous is if you've got, oh, let's say, I don't know, twenty, thirty unemployed, twenty, thirty million unemployed youth, they can join militias, they can migrate, they can start gangs, they all sorts of young people have energy. We're having an energy conversation. They can be channeled for good, or it's going to be cha- it's going to be spent. Hopefully, want it spent in productive ways. We all, when we were young people, we all had energy. I, I like to think we both still have energy. But look, the thing about energy is that energy can be a liberator, right? Yes. When energy arrives in a place, all kinds of things become possible, and we want energy to be a liberator for Nigerian youth, for people everywhere. Unfortunately, because uh, about 3 billion people live in countries where energy is a problem. Energy, the lack of energy has become a barrier to economic opportunity. If it fuels frustration, violence, anger, extremism, you know, I think we'll, I'm not sure how, how straight that yeah, line no, is, uh... but it's, it's definitely wasting tremendous amount of human capital, human capital and human potential. And that that is more than enough reason to invest in, in big energy systems. So, you know, I, I, I know enough about this to be dangerous, but I get this. So, so Ethiopia has a new prime minister, and you, Todd, probably know a lot more about this than I do, but I get the sense this, this guy wants to modernize Ethiopia in a big way. Ethiopia, like Nigeria, is going to probably double in population, something like that. I don't know that. About 100 million. They're going to go to 200 million in the next 30 years, something, something like that. Something close to that. Something that zip code. Um, so a lot of young people, I've heard the term that Ethiopia wants to be the bank, the Bangladesh of Africa, meaning they want to have a whole ton of factories, so textiles, That's right. light manufacturing. I think that there's two things that are implied in that. Well, there are three things implied in that. One is that he wants to have enough high-growth industries for his society that as this youth bulge comes to Ethiopia that they're employed, coming back to what I was saying earlier, that, that yep. two – that there is uh, going to meet require an enormous amount of power. If you want to have factories of that scale, you need an enormous mm-hmm. amount of electricity and power yep. that's reliable, which you were talking about earlier. And three, it probably means you need reliable and economical access to ports mm-hmm. to import and export stuff. Sure. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but I understand you know Ethiopia is a landlocked country and it currently only has access at, until about 20 minutes ago had access to the Djibouti port, correct? Uh, which was not super great, but was okay. But for the kind of, if they want to transform their economy the way the prime minister of Ethiopia wants to transform Ethiopia, it probably meant getting peace in his time with Eritrea so he could access those two ports that Eritrea has on the Red Sea, right? So yeah. is that so? Is this all this all common to come? That, in? Are you buying all that? Well, that all that all makes a lot of sense, and really the energy piece is is essential. Um, Ethiopia is a little bit of an outlier in Africa in that if you look at the data on labor costs and competitiveness, it really does look like 
almost the only country that's going to be competitive in the low end textiles, at least in the in the in the near future. But um, for them to do that, they need energy. They absolutely do, and that's the reason that they have told um, they've told a lot of their international partners that they're going ahead with large hydro projects like Gibe Three, even when there was some some, uh, some some a lot of grumpiness in in the multilateral development. I love banks. hydro. I just want it for the record. I'm uh, two thumbs up on hydro. Is that a think tank term? Two thumbs up. <laughs> it can be. I, I think we should. I think we should make it a thing. Look, this is one of the things that I think the. Um, that I hope we can help to promote this idea with the Energy for Growth Hub, which is that all countries pursue an all-of-the-above energy strategy. They have to do things um, that are in their own national interest. Um, Ethiopia happens to have tremendous hydro potential. So, so tell me this. If, if the World Bank, if the U.S. gets grumpy and says, I don't like hydro anymore, and says, OPIC, you can't do big hydro anymore, I mean, this ain't your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, freer, more capable, and they got more options. So if we're not meeting the answering the mail, they're going to take their business to the Chinese. Is that a fair statement? Well, look, the countries have a lot of options for financing infrastructure. More than they did 25 years ago. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And the thing is that countries have a range of technological options, a range of business models. You know, there's a lot of exciting things in the energy sector right now. Um, and I think some countries right now, they're making decisions that are going to have an impact for 20 or 30 years in their economy. Uh, and that is why one of the reasons we're launching the Energy for Growth Hub is to see if we can help bring data, evidence, and research to help countries make the best possible decisions for their own futures. And that's going to mean, you know, that's going to mean a range of technologies, a range of business models. It's going to mean a lot of off-grid uh, and, and new uh, delivery systems for reaching uh, universal access. But it is also going to mean that all economies, if they're going to be competitive, they're still going to need a grid. They're still going to need large power projects, the big ugly stuff. They're just going to need that if they want to have a more prosperous future that's going to generate jobs for, for their people. So the, just the potential there is enormous. But if we get it wrong, the downside risks for those, for those countries and for the world, I think, are also tremendous. So <clears throat> tell me about the reaction you've gotten so far to this idea of creating the Energy for Growth Hub. What kind of reaction have you gotten? So I'd say from the academic and research community, I've gotten a lot of positive responses in that people feel like they're doing great work, um, but they're not necessarily having the impact in the places where the future infrastructure is going to be built. There's a lot of big brains in the United States working on the California electricity market. Um, but the, the big infrastructure investments are going to be made in places like Nigeria, Kenya, India, not in California. Um, and it's trying to apply some of that capacity that's sitting on the shelf uh, to the big energy problems in the places that those problems are going to be solved. So the academic community has been very positive. In the countries themselves, there is a palpable frustration with the small is beautiful approach. Everybody understands that um, getting lights into homes is, is an important step forward, um, but that what, what do, for example, African countries want? They want economic transformation. That means industrialization. It means a thriving services industry. It means they want data centers. It means they're going to need They want air. cloud. They, they, they want lots all of, of that. Of course. Who, do, who wouldn't want yeah, that in a modern so economy? Are you trying to say that just a couple of solar panels cannot power a big cloud computing thing? Is that what you're trying to say, Todd? <laughs> 
That's what I'm trying to Correct, say. Correct, Dan. That, that, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I just want to add one, one important point here, which is that the climate debate is actually crucial here. Um, if we look at what the effects of climate change will mean in sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. it's going to mean more extreme weather. It's going to be hotter weather, uh, hotter weather and drier weather. What does that mean for Africa? What does Africa need in that context? They're going to need steel and concrete to build resilience. They're going to need cold storage and air conditioning to deal with heat. They're going to need pumped irrigation and desalinization to deal with, uh, with, with uh, a lack of clean water. It's true. All six of those technologies are incredibly energy intensive. So the, uh, this high energy future that we're talking about is even more urgent given uh, the climatic changes that these countries are facing. It, so two questions. Why does Africa not have – why has Africa not been – why hasn't up until now been able to meet its energy needs? Well, that's a, that's a great question of which there's there's not it's a simple a long answer. answer but. but look, the, the, a lot of countries, you know, I work a lot in Ghana. Um, I got my my career start in Ghana. Um, Ghana's energy still largely comes from a high a single hydroelectric dam built by Kwame Nkrumah and John F. Kennedy uh, in the 1960s. Countries have systematically underinvested in their in their energy infrastructure. A lot of the utilities, the other big issue is that a lot of utilities in Africa sell power below the cost of production for political reasons. But what does that do? It bankrupts the utility and it dissuades people from, um, from investing in the, in the sector. That's one of the things that, for example, Power Africa, the U.S. government interagency initiative to promote electrification, has been really great on. They've really worked with countries on things like tariff reform and on utility restructuring which can be a catalyst for bringing in the private money. You want public money, but the big money is, of course, private money. And the way you get private money in is you make bankable projects. So what will power Africa's future? Where will Nigeria get its energy from in the future? So Nigeria is going to have, like all countries are going to have a blend, right? Nobody wants to put all of their Tibet on one, on, one, on one technology. Um, look, Nigeria is going, Nigeria's got a lot of hydro potential. It's got a lot of natural gas potential. It's already producing and exporting natural gas. It's also flaring a lot of gas. And I mean I, wasting. Well, I don't know. If, you ever, if you've ever been next to a, a gas flare, it is like a giant— like apocalypse now. Yes. It's like a gigantic Bunsen burner from, yes, your, yes. from your high school laboratory. It's loud. It's filthy. And, and it's a waste. It's a huge waste, and it's environmentally—it's horrible. Uh, so— um, working to capture and monetize that gas and turn that gas from a waste into electricity that the country can use is exactly one of the kinds of solutions that, um, that a country like Nigeria could use. What are the sorts of things that the Energy for Growth Hub are, is going to work on? What are some of the things that are going to be in your inbox at first? Yeah, so we're going to try to to work at at two levels. One is we want to try to uh, influence the debate around what uh, what the energy future of the world looks like. And we want to make sure that this idea of households is not overwhelmed. Look, I think it's it's a lot easier to deliver uh, a small household system. It's a lot easier to just connect households. Um, and it's a good thing to do that. It's just that we don't get the development it's, it's a work ar- It's a workaround to the larger systemic problems that you were describing earlier. That's right. 
That's right. So I, we, I think so we want to make you sure that we're... something quick and easy, you do a household thing. If you want to do something that's super unglamorous and miserable, and it'll take 10 years, you do tariff reform. Exactly. Right? So we, Or work we, with some utility we, with people <laughs> with, like, bad ties and probably kind of dodgy. You know, it's. I'm, I'm sure it's, like, not a super... You know, if you're if you're like the state-owned utility of XYZ country, that's like that's not a glamour. That's not like a glamour assignment. Look, it's not it's not sexy. It's not like a disruptive new technology. No. Uh, but it is necessary and it's oh, unavoidable. It's, it's part of the blocking tack block and tackling of modernity. That's right. Tell me about the so some well, of the things you're you're working yeah, look, on. We we want to try to provide some thought leadership around making sure that that uh, big energy also happens and that all countries have the opportunity. Uh, for a high energy future, and that all people um, have the opportunity for for a job and to live a modern life. We, I think everyone can agree that everyone should have that. Um, we also want to work at a very practical level and see if we can get some of the capacity that's currently sitting at MIT and Stanford and Chicago and Columbia, get some of that brain power working on some very specific problems and issues that countries are facing. Like, what can we learn about how to end gas flaring? What can we learn about using big data to make smart investments in the grid? What can we learn about about the market for solar panels that would help with utility-scale solar, not one on a house, but a whole solar farm that could feed into a grid and generate a lot of, a lot of economic activity? Those are some of the problems that we think that by building a community of, of smart researchers and connecting them into the policy community, that that, that we can we can try to move the needle. I love those questions. That's awesome. That's awesome. Those are a great way to spend the next two or three years. Those are damn good questions. Okay, if I want to go learn more about the Energy for Growth Hub, you have a website. Yeah, yeah it's energyforgrowth.org, and uh, we'll have a newsletter. And you know, we'll definitely encourage people to uh, to visit and engage with engage with what we're doing. Okay. So let's let's just spend a few minutes talking about how the hell you got here. How did you? I mean, how you ended up becoming the executive director and founder of the Energy for Growth Hub? So you, so where'd you grow up, Todd? So I am a uh, I was a suburban kid from Rochester, New York. I didn't have any connection to Africa. I didn't know anything about development. Um, and you know, when I look back, the the career path it's just been a whole series of kind of random accidents that happened. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Life's not linear, Dan. Life is not linear. So, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a college student at Tufts in Boston, and I really wanted to just do something different. And I had a professor who said, who suggested I go to Zimbabwe for a semester. And um, this is when Zimbabwe was cool, was, was, was uh, put it was, together, it, it was, it had was, its act together. It was, it was back in 1990. Yeah. It was a simpler so, time. It, it sure was. And so there I was. I got off the plane in Harare, Zimbabwe, thinking I was going on this exotic, romantic, uh, you know, adventure. Victoria Falls. And I get off the. You get off the plane in Harare, and the skyline of Harare, Zimbabwe, looks a heck of a lot like the skyline of Rochester, New York. <laughs> and I lived with a nice middle class family of two teachers and four kids, and you know, it was actually it was eye opening to me in how normal it was and how comfortable it was and from that moment on i was basically hooked on africa for the for the rest of my life and career um i finished at tufts and uh, graduated from tufts and a week later was on a plane back to zimbabwe um, and then spent about a year 
uh, with my then girlfriend, now wife, backpacking around. And we went from Harare down to Cape Town and then all the way up to Nairobi and Uganda. You know, that really cemented a career working on Africa. So how many African countries have you been to? I've been to, I don't know, 23, 24 uh, countries in Africa. You know, I try to get there a couple of times a year. I haven't lived there since, uh, since I've had kids. I mean, if anything, when I started, you know, in the early 1990s, it was kind of hard to see how you would build a career doing this. Asia was taking off. Yeah, yeah. And But, you know, it just my passion was in the region, and I stuck with it, and it, fortunately for me, it worked out. So is, is Africa going to be the next Asia? Africa is an incredibly diverse yeah. uh, place. There, there are Saharan African countries, billion yeah. people. There are pockets of Africa that are joining the global economy, and are you know there will be parts of Africa that are going to look like uh, you know Sing- Korea, Singapore within our within our lifetimes. Yeah. But there are going to be huge areas of Africa that are going to look nothing not. like that. No. So I think the interesting thing is being able to differentiate. Um, and it's not just picking countries. It's actually within countries. So, you know, Lagos is nothing like rural Zamfara state in Nigeria. But I do think that um, the, the rise, the incredible talent in Africa, the movement of the diaspora around the world – you know, people move easily from Lagos to New York to Silicon Valley to London back to Lagos. That is going to make that's going to be Africa's future, um, and I think it's uh, it's super exciting. It's fabulous. Okay, so you, what was your first job when you finished backpacking? So I finished backpacking. I'll, I'll try to do this quickly. Yeah, yeah. Finished backpacking. I did uh, grad school in, in the UK, and then I came to Washington, and I got my first job working for a think tank that. Um, doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Overseas Development yes. Council. Yes. And my first job was as the assistant for David Gordon, who eventually became policy planning director, vice chair of the NIC, and he's still a, a very close friend and one of my one of my mentors. And that really opened my eyes to the Washington policy community. Then I went back to London to do my PhD. I worked on Ghana stock Ghana stock exchange uh, for my PhD oh, wow. in financial markets in West Africa, and then taught at LSE for a year, decided I didn't want to be an academic. And another one of these random accidents, I called a a former colleague and said, all right, I think I'm ready to come back to the U.S. And they said they knew of a job at the World Bank that I was perfect for, but I I had to be in Washington like the following week. So I got on a plane, flew, and got a job working at the World Bank in the Africa region, working for a wonderful guy, Alan Gelb, who was the mm. chief economist uh, at the time. Um, and I wonderful did, man. Fantastic guy. Fantastic and now guy. a colleague of mine at CGD. Fantastic guy. And I did that for about 18 months. And then there was a new think tank starting, the Center for Global Development. And Nancy Birdsall convinced me that I could do a lot more and be more creative and entrepreneurial in a new startup think tank than inside the World Bank. So I followed her there. And that's, uh, and that, that's how I got right, to CGD. The rest is history. Now, you, you right. did a stint at the State Department. I did. I did. That was another kind of funny accident, which was at CGD, we worked on Nigerian debt. Um, you might recall yes. back in 0405, Nigeria was negotiating with the Paris Club uh, for debt relief. Um, and as part of that, we did some analysis for Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, who was the finance minister of yeah. Nigeria at the time. An icon. Absolutely. So, so we were working on this, and I, just, I, I went to brief the U.S. Treasury person about what I thought would be a good way out on the Nigerian debt deal, and I got a 15-minute meeting with a guy named Bobby Pittman. And I walked in. I'd never met him before, 
and we started talking about Nigerian debt, and our 15-minute meeting turned into an hour and a half, and Bobby became a good friend. And then Bobby moved to the State Department uh, to be the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Jendai Frazier, and then he got promoted to the White House to be President Bush's Senior Africa Director, and Jendai asked him, uh, do you know do you any? Know? Who do you know that knows West Africa and economics? And Bobby named me, and that and I came in, had one interview with Jendai, and that's how I had the job. So that was story. it. Was a great it was a great experience. Two years, just under two years. You know, it was at the end of the Bush administration, but I was able to work. You know, I had sixteen African uh, countries, the whole West Africa portfolio, and you'll you know, it was not just Nigeria, but we had. All, all the nonsense going on in Mali. We were trying to rebuild uh, the nation of Liberia. I got to work on Ghana, you know, the place where I started my career. You know, it was a really fantastic experience, not only to work on Africa policy, but really to see the, the sausage machine of U.S. foreign policy and how sometimes ugly and fragmented and dysfunctional it can be. Okay, so you have a side gig. You are a mystery novel writer. <laughs> I've bought retail several of your books. By All the right, way. thank you, Dan. So how how that happen? So that actually happened when I left state. So I left the State Department. I went back to CGD, and um, and Nancy Bertzall encouraged me. She said, "Look, why don't you write a book about about how U.S. foreign policy is really made, and why is it so messed up?" And so I started. I wrote an outline for a book about dysfunction in U.S. foreign policy making. And I decided it would be a depressing book to write and a depressing book to read. So a better way would be, why don't I just write it as a thriller? So I created this character, Judd Riker, who's a nerdy academic who lands by accident inside the State Department. And there's a coup in Mali, and he has, he has 100 hours to fix it. I wrote it for myself for fun. But of course, when it was, when it was done, I wanted to publish it. I got very fortunate as I found an agent just as we were trying to sell the book Molly, you know, Molly had a real coup, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, you know, a terrorist group took over the northern half of Mali, and there were French troops, and it was in the news, and uh, that helped my agent sell a four book series uh, to Penguin. Um, so we did first the Golden Hour about Mali, second one is Minute Zero about Zimbabwe, third was actually about Cuba, the Ghosts of Havana, yes. and then the most recent one is called The Shadow List which is about uh, Russian organized crime uh, and corruption in Nigeria, all with the Judd Riker and his wife, Jessica, uh, trying to untangle this uh, nasty web. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. What, do you, what makes you optimistic about the future of Africa? It's a great question. Look, I think the, the mix of technological change and the incredible energy and capacity in the continent, which is, we haven't even seen of the people. beginning. Of, it's human, people. Human, human energy, Absolutely. human capacity. And because people can be connected because of technology, because people can move, you move to a city, all these opportunities, you know, this is time immemorial, ambitious people move to the city and all these opportunities arrive. That transition, which happened in the, in the United States in the early 20th century, we're just at the front end of that in Africa. So the, the number of dynamic, capable people sitting in Senegal or in Kenya or in Nigeria or in Zimbabwe mm-hmm. whose, whose potential is not yet tapped is colossal. And if we can just find little ways to give them those opportunities to, to live up to their potential, the, you know, I mean, the future is going to be crazy good. 
Okay, my last question is tell me about China and Africa because I think that moves Americans and moves policymakers. <laughs> I think I think the Trump administration is in the final analysis on many issues willing to move primarily because of the China challenge, if you will. So how if I say China, Africa, energy, what you know, what's your word association with that? Yeah, look, I I think I so I I probably take a, a slightly um, different view of this than most people in this town. I I agree that China's presence in Africa is obvious and it can be very motivating to get US policymakers who might otherwise not care not at all care. about Africa to pay attention. I'd say net net China's engagement in Africa is fairly positive and it's positive not just for Africans but for the United States. So what are the Chinese actually trying to do there? They're they're, they're actually trying to get markets working. They're actually trying to have stable economies that are going to produce jobs and are going to help create more viable economies. That's exactly what the United States wants in Africa, too. And I'm also much more positive in that the kinds of things that the U.S. and China bring to the table are so very different. The U.S. is not going to be able to do what the Chinese are doing. We wouldn't want to do that. That's not our model. And the kinds of things that the U.S. does, working on governance, democratization, human rights, investments in education and health. The Chinese don't do that. So they're actually quite complementary. I, I hope that we can find ways to see that as, as partners and collaborators rather than competitors. And I'm definitely struck one, one good example of this. In Liberia, there's a, a new university that was built. The Chinese built the buildings, cheap finance and, and Chinese construction, and the U.S. trained all the teachers. And there's now Liberia has a has a universe a new university it wouldn't have had otherwise helped to create that opportunity and it's because the U.S. and China kind of stuck to what they do best. Now I don't want to whitewash some of the problems of Chinese engagement. I was in Zimbabwe a couple of weeks ago, and that that country is going through a terrible political period that's partly enabled by Chinese investment. The Chinese are not as transparent as we would like them to be. They're not as supportive of democracy and human rights that we would like them to be. So it's not a, an entirely bright picture. But I do think that the I do think that the potential there is 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 far more positive than uh, than, than than your average DC policymaker thinks. Okay. Todd, congratulations on this new venture. We're uh, we're with you 100%. Congratulations. Great. Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you. Thanks.